The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am James Birch and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. And uh, Father says the traditional Latin Mass in Norwood, Ohio at Immaculate Conception Church. It is good to have you with us tonight, Father. Thank you, John. Uh, we have received many questions from our viewers, uh, also some suggested topics. Uh, so tonight we are going to try to run through as many of those questions as we can. Uh, please do know that we uh, have received your emails. We're very grateful for all of your suggestions, and we are going to try to, in the future, also touch upon some of the topics that have been suggested uh, for shows. So tonight, uh, Father, my uh, first our first question is, what is your preferred version of the breviary? Uh, well, the traditional breviary in Latin uh, has undergone uh, some metamorphosis. <laughs> The uh, changes came in, actually, uh, under Pius XII, uh, when uh, Cardinal Bea, a Jewish convert, had the Psalms translated, um, retranslated, as it were, into uh, classical Latin, or more classical Latin. Um, style, I guess, Latin-wise, Latin more, more classical, but uh, impossible to pray. And so it, it was uh, a complete waste of time and effort. Uh, as a matter of fact, there are those who say that this was not really intended to uh, improve the prayer of the church, but was intended to destroy it. There are those who say this was a, a, a very energetic plot, taking a lot of time and resources, to basically take the Latin bravery and make it unprayable as a step toward... Um, uh, using the, the vernacular and replacing it entirely, finally, with the Liturgy of the Hours of the Novus Ordo, which is a very stripped-down, uh, simplified uh, version of what used to be the Divine Office. It's not really the Divine, the divine Office anymore, though. Uh, so, um, I and the other priests I know in the Society of St. Pius V are using the uh, breviaries generated from the 1940s, and uh, 1930s sometimes, with the uh, uh, the feast days that have uh, you know been uh, brought in traditionally uh, during that uh, during those years, uh, we do not use the 1962 version of anything. Okay, uh, we do not use the John the 23rd changes any of them. So uh, anything that was traditional that was uh, pre John the 23rd. We will use now. There were there were things that were introduced prior to John the Twenty Third uh, during the reign of Pope Pius the Twelfth, which were not traditional. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we know that's that's the case because the modernists who were heading up the liturgical movement back then actually crowed about that, getting these changes in uh, even during the time of Pope Pius the Twelfth, and this was a uh, an anomaly because Pope Pius the Twelfth had actually condemned archaeologism in the liturgy. He condemned uh, trying to restore the ancient practices uh, of the liturgy um, 
which was that was the the cry of the modernist bring about primitive restore uh rediscover primitive primitive christianity i mean that's what every heresiarch has done uh to the church in all of these centuries saying well we're going back to the original christianity because the catholic church has deviated from true christianity they say uh, and in going off in search of the primitive Christianity, they, they ultimately, of course, simply uh, create some kind of religion of their own, according to their imagination of what primitive Christianity, primitive, primitive Christianity must have been. So, and it's a pure fantasy. Uh, Pius XII condemned that archaeologism. And then, uh, as it turns out, ironically, uh, established the uh, Concilium established uh, the effort to, uh, let's say, reform the liturgy. And uh, the modernists, as I say, had been crowing for some time that if they could uh, change the rites of Holy Week, especially the Triduum, uh, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday, that they could change everything. And so that's where they focused their efforts. That's where they bent all of their influence uh, even during the last, uh, last 10 years of the reign of Pope Pius XII. And uh, so they, they managed to su uh, succeed. They, they succeeded in getting new rites of Holy Week, so-called restored rites of Holy Week through 1954, 1955. And if you have a, a, a Roman Missal, a daily Missal that dates uh, from 1955 on, you will find that these so-called restored rites of Holy Week are in those missiles um, of that vintage and thereafter. Um, but uh, again, this uh, archaeologism, the church had always condemned. It wasn't just Pope Pius XII. And again, the modernists were not content with that. You know, they knew if they could bring these changes in under Pius XII, uh, that that would just be the like the, the 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 finger in the dike that was taken out, holding back the the seawater from rushing in and flooding the land. <clears throat> and so uh, they succeeded then in wave after wave of changes once they got those in. And sure enough, they swept everything away with their new mass and their new sacraments and <clears throat> the new rites, the the new uh, liturgy of the hours replacing the true divine office of the Catholic Church, began with that effort to change uh, the rite of uh, Holy Thursday, the rite of Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. All of that was done uh, in the early 50s and came out under the, well, uh, officially under the authority of Pius XII. Although, as I say, in principle, he'd condemned that. So uh, the reason why I mentioned that uh, more than once is because that was typical of the contradiction that was going on within the Vatican, saying one thing and doing another, uh, which really gives rise to the question, well, who's really in charge? <coughs> Who is behind these things? We saw this, this problem of, um, you know, a pope condemning something and then having somebody in the Vatican succeed in getting it pushed through. Um, we, we saw this uh, during the time of Pope Pius, the, the, uh, rather, Paul VI. I mean, Paul VI went so far as to bring about this new mass, so-called. And uh, if, you, if you were to look at the subsequent 
copies or reprints of the document by which he imposed the new mass, you would find that that document ends with a string of legal language uh, that indicates it really has you know, papal authority behind it. But if you were to go back to the original uh, form of that document in the Acta Apostolici Sedis, <coughs> for the year of its publication, 1968, you'd find that uh, none of that legal language was there in the original document. There was one word, and that was the word volumus. We want this. <clears throat> we want this to be done. Uh, this does not give you a, a legal document, a legally enforceable and uh, a legally commanding document in the Catholic Church. Someone subsequent to the um, issuance of, of this document and uh, announcing the, the Novus Ordo Vise to the world went in and, and, and added all of that language to a supposedly papal document. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of thing that was going on there, which uh, would certainly uh, create the suspicion that there's some chicanery going on. There definitely is, because the modernists are at work, and their Masonic friends are at work in the Vatican, have been for some time now. Um, anyway, the Society of St. Pius V uh, sees that this work of carrying out the changes in the, in the bravery, uh, in the Missal, in the sacramental rites, that these were all the work of this committee, as it were, that came into being under Pope Pius XII, from beginning to end, over a 20-year period from 1948 to 1968, they worked on changing the liturgy of the Church entirely, and they were all using the same principles. Even for the tiny changes, apparently minor changes at the beginning, uh, they were using the same principles based upon which they made the great changes at the end, and finally managed to sweep away all the traditional rites of the Church. And so we reject that so-called reform in principle. And uh, because we reject it in principle, we reject all the changes that they've made. Uh, we see that accepting any of the changes, as there are those who say, well, let's accept the 1962 changes. That's where we're going to come down on this. Well, those 1962 changes were made for reasons. And the reasons are stated. The principles are given. The principles are poisoned. The principles are contrary to Catholic understanding of, of the sacred liturgy. And so they cannot accept the changes without at least admitting the principles. But if they admit the principles uh, on which the, the changes were based, then you would ask yourself reasonably, well, why don't they just accept all the changes? Why do they pick those in particular? Um, if we're going to reject the modernist principles that change the liturgy, then we have to reject the entire revolutionary process. This is the approach of the Society of St. Pius V. So that's why we go back before the changes are made, including before the new rites of the Triduum, the Holy Week, came into being. We followed the, the old traditional rites of Holy Week before any of these modernist changes uh, were put into effect by this committee established to change the liturgy, but under Pope Pius XII. Our next question, um, our reader asks, the Bible states that we are the images and likeness of God. Does this still apply to post-fall humanity, or was the image corrupted? Um, well, the traditional explanation is that the, the image and the likeness are two separate things, okay? two different things. By nature, by the human nature that God created, 
we remain in his image. Um, that is a natural image of God within us. And they say, St. Augustine, for example, saw the image of the Blessed Trinity in our memory, our intelligence, and our will. Our memory gives us the permanence of truth in the mind. The, uh, the intellect enables us to discern what is true and to know what is true. The uh, will gives us the power to love what is good. These three powers of the human soul are, uh, St. Augustine says, where we find the natural image of God in man, reflecting the Blessed Trinity. That was not destroyed. It was impaired, no doubt about it. I mean, uh, our intellects and our wills and our memories were all crippled by sin because now we are subject to the passions. Our, our, our intellects and wills are so weakened that our passions <clears throat> have grown in strength. And so often we are dominated by the passions. <coughs> and uh, when we sin, <coughs> this is what's happening. That's why we choose a, a created good as an idol in place of God in our in our love, in our souls. We, um, we have a supernatural image of God in the soul by grace, that sanctifying grace, and that is what is the, the likeness to God. And we lost that by sin. By mortal sin, we, we always lose that supernatural likeness of God, of sanctifying grace. I mean, even in the natural sphere, uh, we, we talk about, we use the words image and likeness in our common parlance. You might say of a, a little boy, well, he's the, he's the image of his dad. Well, he's the image of his dad because he resembles him. He looks like him, okay? But when you say he's the likeness of his dad, you can mean much more than he merely looks like his dad. Uh, he may sound like him. He may talk like him. He may think like him and react like him. And that likeness is much more thorough than a mere appearance. Um... It has to do with the, the character <coughs> and, uh, and the, the personality and so on. So um, when we are in the image of God, we um, reflect, as it were, uh, the power of God to, to know and to love, to know what is true, to love what is good. But when we are in the likeness of God, then we have an actual share in the divine life within us. And that makes us, as it were, uh, resemble God, um, not, not just in a mere outward appearance, but even inwardly in the soul. I guess that's as well as I can explain it right now. No, that uh, I, th I think really does, um, the idea that sanctifying grace makes us like, like God is a good point for all of us to remember that that is why it's so important to stay in the state of sanctifying grace, mm -hmm. that we are like God, not just in the image of God. Not just so. in the image or appearance. Appearance, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. Our uh, next uh, uh, viewer has a couple of questions um, about Protestants. They have some Protestant friends, and uh, our viewer, she's been asked what Catholics believe about the rapture by a Protestant friend, and uh, she's not sure what the answer is. Well, the rapture is an idea that came about rather late in the history of what people commonly call Christianity. It wasn't until, I think, the mid-1800s that the idea of a rapture came to be. People were interpreting St. Paul, uh, often the, the passage we read during the Requiem Mass, that we who are alive shall be taken up together with Christ in the air 
and so shall we be always with the Lord. They're misinterpreting that passage <laughs> from, the, uh, from the writings of St. Paul. Uh, the fathers of the church knew nothing of this rapture, okay? In fact, the church, Christians, in general, even heretical sects, did not know anything of this idea of a rapture until 1,800 years after our Lord um, rose from the dead. <clears throat> so it, it's a pure fantasy and invention. Um, the, um, you know, to go into it more deeply, uh, just, just pointing out the fact that it was un unknown before 150 years ago um, that Christians knew nothing of this back then. I think that's, long, that's enough to just say this is simply somebody's fantasy, okay? For the church to have existed that long uh, without any notion of this tells you this was not, you know, mm -hmm. part of what our Lord taught, not part of what Christians believed. Um, could one interpret the words of St. Paul this way? Uh, one could probably uh, interpret them this way uh, if he got to be daydreaming about them and disassociated those words from the rest of sacred scripture and from all of Christian Catholic tradition. Oh uh, yeah, you can take any passage from the Bible and make it say virtually anything you want to imagine it to do. Um, but the fact is, it is not, it has no historical basis in, in Christian belief. Uh, certainly not in Catholic belief. Um, what we know is that um, through our Catholic faith, that there will be a general judgment and that the good and the bad will be called, they'll be resurrected. And the good and the bad will stand by our Lord, in front of our Lord, for judgment. Um, St. Paul was dealing with the question of what about those who are still alive when Christ returns at the end of the world. He was dealing with that. And um, the, uh, he says, the dead who are in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will be joined with them. Um, but uh, our Lord in the Gospel, St. Matthew chapter 25, talks about a general judgment. He talks about the good being on his right hand and the, the goat, he, he calls them the sheep, the, the sheep on his left hand. So there will be a separation between them. But our Lord does not talk about a separation between them in the sense that the good will all be raptured away. And on earth, they'll just be the condemned to be judged. Our Lord doesn't say that. Uh, again, if you take that passage out of the context of the entirety of sacred scripture, you, you can misrepresent it, and which is, this is what they do. But if you go to St. Matthew chapter 25, he our Lord presents a very different uh, modification of that idea, let's say, where uh, the good and the evil will be standing before him to be judged. And uh, this is what the church calls the general judgment. And uh, we know that the general judgment is necessary beyond the particular judgment of each individual soul that dies and appears before our Lord. Because when we have our particular judgment, we, st we stand before our Lord for judgment individually. We will understand that all of the, uh, the, the judgments that God has made to us are perfectly just, that God has been perfectly just and perfectly merciful to us in our sentence, eternal sentence. We will understand that. We'll understand the gravity of the decisions we've made and how they have either been faithful to our Lord or unfaithful to him. There'll be no question in our mind about 
the justice and the mercy of God with regard to our individual judgment and our individual sentence. But uh, that does not supply a, a very, very important aspect of the fact that we are, you know, part of humanity. And uh, God will have the general judgment so that we will then all see the justice and mercy of the sentence for each and every single individual who will ever live. Uh, that will be a very spectacular event, you know, obviously. Uh, but God, and it will not take time. God will not be reading off one after another, having us appear before him one after another. Uh, and that doesn't have to. God can impress upon our minds immediately an understanding of his judgment in all of his particulars as being perfectly just and perfectly merciful in regard to every single soul of men and every single spirit, every angel he ever created. We will understand that. And there'll be no doubt, and there'll be no questions. That's the general judgment. Um, those who uh, go in for the rapture idea of uh, kind of a Protestant offshoot, many Protestants don't, don't have any notion of this rapture. It's just a kind of a... Uh, well, it's been touted by popular literature, you know. The, uh, what is the name of the series? Something, uh, yeah, there's a movie <coughs> where they, uh, uh, the people just disappear... Right, um, right. Uh, I'm sorry. I, uh, I don't recall it right now. Uh, what is it? Left Behind. Tim Lay. Left Behind. Tim Lay. Right. What is left, the title? Left Behind. Oh, the, the Left Behind series. Yes. You can, you can edit that out. <laughs> the Left Behind series. Um, we have our advisors in the studio audience here. Uh, obviously better read than we. Uh, the Left Behind series referring to the bad who are left here to deal with the consequences of sin. Um, the, the Protestant school I went to, we, we watched those. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah, we did, yeah. The people oh, were walking around and a lot of people disappeared. Mm. And then there were people who were left who could still, because you could still be saved. Mm -hmm. So they were left to try to still be saved. And oh. had these battles with the people who were marked with the sign. And, okay, but they had to fight their way to salvation. Correct. <laughs> Okay, but uh, what happened? I mean, uh, what happened to the idea then that they could be saved by faith alone? Well, they had to find that faith once they kind of fought their way to finding that faith. And oh, they wouldn't fight because they had faith. They would fight, correct. and then they would have faith because they fought. So there were people who didn't oh. know, hadn't taken sides yet, so to speak. Oh, okay. So that's the result of their fighting these bad people. Rather, they than they. But they were trying to be good people. They were trying to be good people, but they didn't have. They didn't, Christ, Christ was not their personal savior, okay. so they couldn't be saved. Right, okay, until they fought their way through to faith. Okay, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, of course, this whole scenario is uh, very um, good for novels and good for Hollywood, but it's bad theology, and it doesn't appear in the gospel. Mm -hmm. It doesn't appear in sacred scripture anywhere. Uh, it is pure fantasy. Um, so, in any case... Um, I would just tell her, this is a novel idea in Christianity. I would just have your friend respond. If you've traced the history of this idea back, you would find that it doesn't go back more than 150-something years. And uh, it was not believed by the early Christians. There's no trace of that in, in, in Christianity before that. It was just somebody's fantasy idea interpreted from some small section of sacred scripture. And it actually does contradict 
uh, things that our Lord himself has said in sacred scripture with regard to the general judgment. And uh, just as a layman, uh, see if my summary is correct, and I was following what you said, what would happen is, is that when, when our Lord does come back, at first there'll be the resurrection of the dead, mm -hmm. then uh, the resurrected and the people on earth will then be judged by our Lord and split into the two, mm -hmm. two groups of, the, okay. So. Right, there'll be a division, and our Lord will make a division, and our Lord will then, you know, pronounce the sentence for all of those who are saved. And to um, those who are condemned, you know, come ye blessed, depart ye accursed ones. Um, you know, back when all of this was uh, all the rage, <coughs> one might see a uh, bumper sticker saying, in, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned or driverless or something. Mm -hmm. Did you see yes, that? Yes, yes. Yeah. You don't see too many of those around anymore. I suppose uh, now they're getting these driverless cars, you know, just in case. Maybe this is the idea. I don't know. That's true. Um, but uh, it's that's not going to happen that way. That's 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 pure fantasy. Well, that's um, uh, it's good to get the explanation too, because I'm sure that if you were to say to your friend, well, you know, that we don't believe that there is any rapture, you know, it's something that's been made up. Was well, what, what would you believe? And you would, it would be the follow-up question, I would imagine. So having an explanation, I think, is good. Well, Jim, not only that. I, 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 I agree. A follow-up to explain well, what we do believe, okay, and show that it is scriptural right. as, as traditional teaching. I think it's important also to point out with regard to the rapture, um, my understanding of the teaching is those who are raptured do not undergo death. They're just kind of assumed, right? right? And if there's anything that contradicts sacred scripture, that's it. Right? Um, the fact is... Um, we simply are not assumed into heaven. We undergo death. Uh, the soul and the body have to separate. This is a common um, uh, consequence of sin, right? Wages of sin, death, right? So um, how they can reconcile this idea of so many people just being just like drawn away, you know, without having under to undergo the death process of death and dying, um, I don't see how they could possibly reconcile that with anything in, in sacred scripture. Certainly nothing in traditional Christianity. So that would, I guess, maybe leave the question. So what the true belief would be then, though, is well, what about the people who are on earth when our Lord would come back? Uh, the resurrection of the dead. So what would the Catholic belief be about those people? Because, I mean... They would all have to undergo death. Oh, they would. Okay. They would have to undergo death. And St. Paul says that we who are left who are alive, right, will be taken up. He does say that. But, you know, they're interpreting that that means that we, they don't have to undergo death. That is, not, that is not true. That is not what the Catholic Church has taught. It's kind of ironic, you know, that there are those out there who are talking about this rapture and people, perhaps by the hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands, just being assumed, as it were. But when it comes to the assumption of our Blessed Lady into heaven, they say, oh, no, 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 you can't have that. Um, and, and again, I mean, I think it, it that shows there, there's no um, real um, basis for this objectivity, certainly, that it is a matter of, uh, well, again, a good novel, like a, a good science, I mean, science fiction. It's, it's kind of like uh, Christian fiction, you know, but uh, it is not what Christians have always believed.
is an innovation. Uh, interesting that you brought that up. Um, I'll, I'll save the other viewer's question. I'll get back to it in a moment. But uh, we had a viewer here who, who uh, made a comment about that. They asked, well, what, what do Catholics believe on the matter of the saints and the communion of the saints? Um, this is a good follow-up question to actually what you, you just brought up even about Our Lady, um, because it is something that comes up quite often when you're talking to Protestants. Mm -hmm. um, so what is the Catholic belief in the matter of the saints, the communion of the saints? Maybe a little explanation for anyone who has to answer Well, that. in the creed, we talk about the communion of the saints. Right. <laughs> I should say the creeds, because it's more than one expression of the faith, but they all mention the communion of saints. And uh, if, you, if you look at the uh, epistles of St. Paul, you'll find that time after time he's, he's addressing his epistles to the saints who are in Corinth, to the saints who are in Galatia, to the saints who are in Thessalonica, and so on. And he means the holy souls there, okay? They haven't died, but they are in the state of God's grace. And so they are holy and pleasing to God, and he calls them holy ones. That's what saints mean. Means, Of course, when we as Catholics refer to saints, we refer to those who have already died, been judged, been found uh, in the, by the grace of God, have been found uh, faithful to him, and he himself has pronounced them saved, you know? So St. Paul, in writing to the saints uh, in the various communities that he has established, uh, the various churches that he established, he was not referring to them as though they were, quote-unquote, saved. He himself makes that very clear, because he said that having believed, he himself could become a castaway. Having preached the faith, he himself could become a castaway if, he, if he's not faithful. Uh, so he not only has to uh, believe, he not only has to preach to others, but he has to also live the faith and uh, be faithful in the way he lives his life. Um, uh, this is contrary to those who have that, that uh, very deceitful, you uh, might siren song that we are saved by faith alone, regardless of what we do. Um, but when we as Catholics talk about saints, we talk about those who are in heaven with God right now. And uh, there's a distinction even there, because we as Catholics believe in purgatory, and we believe that those souls in purgatory are saved, that they died in the grace of God, and they are saved, but they simply have a, a, very, a love for God which is not perfected. They have also left behind damage in this world. Temporal punishment is due for the damage that their sins have done in the world. Um, and so we're not talking about them. We don't ref usually refer to them as saints. We refer to those who have the beatific vision of God right now, okay? Um, that's the strict sense, okay? Even referring to St. Michael the Archangel and St. Gabriel the Archangel and St. Raphael the Archangel, we refer to them as saints in a broader sense. Strictly, we're talking about human souls that have died, been judged by Christ and declared saved and are now in the beatific vision of God in heaven. That's the strictest meaning of the term, okay? However, when we talk about the communion of saints, we are talking about the bond that exists beyond, be, among all the holy souls, all of those who are in the state of God's grace, sanctifying grace. We're talking about those souls on earth who are even now uh, in the state of sanctifying grace and have the divine life of God within the soul, in that seed in the soul of sanctifying grace. We're talking about the souls in purgatory, uh, all of them, because they have died in the grace of God and they are in the state of sanctifying grace. We are united with them 
in this communion because we all share this divine life of God within us. We're talking about the souls who are now in heaven. They have the divine life, purely and simply in heaven. Uh, it doesn't erase who they are. They also have the life of human beings they were created to be. They remain who they were. The God created each soul to be this individual and no one else. And yet they have this divine life of God with the, uh, in the soul, which um, unites them to God in this most spectacular way we know as the lumen gloria, the light of glory and the beatific vision. We, we say, even in the communion of saints, we're going to have the holy souls, the, the, rather the spirits of the angels. Uh, all of those spirits whom God has created in his image, because the angels also have the image of God within them by nature, more perfectly than we do. But also, insofar as the angels have the divine life of God's grace, sanctifying grace within them, they also belong to the communion of saints. All of those souls are holy. So when St. Paul writes to the saints as he addresses them uh, in his epistles, he is actually giving the understanding that we are all united with this common uh, life, that you have your life and I have mine and you know others have their individual lives. But one thing we all have in common, and therefore it is a communion, is that divine life with you, which unites us all uh, so, so powerfully. Um, excluded from that communion of saints are those who don't have the divine life, who do not have sanctifying grace. The fallen angels, the devils, uh, the fallen human beings who have lost uh, grace or never had it, if they never received sanctifying grace, even from the moment they were born, uh, those who are in hell, um, they do not have this divine life. They, are not, they do not belong to the communion of saints. And um, <clears throat> speaking of uh, hell, our, the uh, follow-up question um, from our reader um, was about the uh, how should she address the question with a Protestant friend of no salvation outside of the Catholic Church. Um, and, I, and I know from having Protestant friends that they, they easily interpret that to mean, well, uh, so you, what you're saying is since I'm not Catholic that I'm going to hell. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not... And I can understand why someone might interpret that way, but that's not what it means. Um, so how should a Catholic talk to a Protestant about that idea? I mean, obviously you're trying to convert them so that they, they would be inside the Catholic Church um, anyway, but it never helps to talk to someone to try to convert them by telling them first that you know, you're going to hell. Well, there are Protestants who will start out that way. Well, you're, you're going to hell. You're going <laughs> to hell. <laughs> that's true. Um, but uh, Catholics uh, do not necessarily start there, Okay. Because they want people to understand. And so I remember talking to a, a Protestant uh, who challenged me on that point. I'd say, well, let's, uh, let's see where we, where we agree. You know, I'd say, uh, do you agree that Jesus Christ is the true Son of God and uh, the only Savior of mankind? And uh, I expect that Protestant would say yes. If he said no, then I'd say, oh, well, then we have nothing to talk about it. <laughs> um, if he says, yes, absolutely, Jesus Christ is the Redeemer of mankind, and salvation can only be come through him. As St. As Peter says, uh, there is no salvation in, in, in any other name, right? And they say, well, that's exactly what the Catholic Church teaches, right? 
And so, uh, did Jesus Christ establish a church? And I tend to think a Protestant friend would say, yes, he established a church. How could he deny it, right? It's, well, he could, I suppose. People uh, claim to be believing Christians, and they deny all kinds of things, you know, that are uh, clearly done by our Lord. But in any case, um, uh, I assume that our Protestant friend would say, yes, Jesus Christ established his church. And you might ask, well, how many churches did Jesus establish? And he would say, one, I'm sure. And say, okay. So um, if, if Jesus, our Lord and Savior, established a church, his church, um, is there a necessity to belong to that church? I tend to think our, our pro to be saved, in other words. I tend to think our Protestant would say, well, yes, you have to, because uh, unless you belong to that church, you can't be faithful to Christ. I mean, Christ wants you to belong to his church. That's why he established it. So you'd have to belong to it. So I'd say, well, if I could prove to you then, or make it clear to you that the Catholic Church was that church, would you agree with me then? You have to belong to the Catholic Church to be saved. And um, he might say, well, that, well, that's when he would simply go off on a tangent, I think. you would change the subject or whatever. But he would simply deny, uh, if he did even re uh, respond to that question, he would say, you can't prove it to me because it's not true. And uh, there we get into a, another series of discussions, you know. I, I would see if it was possible to discuss this point with him. Um, now, I'm not necessarily going to here and now go through that whole, you know, process. But I would just try to make the point to him and get, even get him to make the point. Look, if Jesus Christ is the Savior, if he's the Son of God, and as the Gospels tell us, he came to do two things. Things that our Lord spoke of over and over again. He came to give his life as a sacrifice for us, to redeem us from our sins, and he came to establish his church, as all of his parables talk about, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, to establish his church. And uh, if our Lord did, in fact, die on the cross as our Redeemer, and we cannot be saved uh, in any other way without him, uh, and he came to establish his church, and you acknowledge the fact that you have to be part of that church, to be a member of the church, to belong to that church of Christ, to be faithful to him and to be saved by him. Well, then, okay, we have a foundation to, to, uh, you know, to, to talk about that. You know? The question then is, do you belong to that church? Did Christ establish the church that you belong to or not? Now, inevitably, what you're going to get down to is the discussion of what you mean by church. Because Protestants have a very, very different idea of church than the Catholics. The Catholics see church as what it meant in our Lord's time. I mean, when he used the word, the ecclesia, or, um, you know, in the various other languages of Scripture, uh, it had a very definite meaning of an actual society of people, a visible society bound together by a common life, by common laws, by common common leadership, uh, common belief. It was a very, very definite thing. It wasn't just this amorphous mass of believers who believed a lot of different things, but they all kind of converged on certain basic beliefs, you know, that, that they made them Christian. No, that's not what ecclesia means um, in the terms, in the words of the Gospels, right? Um, so, um, but one would have to go through that whole process of helping them understand uh, one can help him understand, actually, from the parables our Lord taught about his church, the church that he was establishing, what he called the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven here on earth, uh, 
um, the characteristics of the church that he was going to establish. One could talk him through about what that church would have to be like. One could say, well, the church would have to be like our Lord. It would have to reflect our Lord, who was its author. Uh, as any work of art reflects its, its, its artist. And um, so the church itself must reflect our Lord himself. Look at the prophecies that our Lord gave. Look at the parables our Lord told about the church. And look at his own life and put them together. And what do you see? Did our Lord give authority to his church? And your Protestant would probably say yes. They'd say, well, well, do we read about that in the gospel? Well, where is he going to find this? But he's going to have to find it when our Lord commands the apostles to go and to preach the gospel and to baptize and to instruct uh, all mankind to follow and obey his commandments. Uh, at the Last Supper, when our Lord commands you do this in that commemoration of me, when he's giving the, the apostles specific directions of what they must do, then our Lord must be giving them the power and the authority to do that because they're carrying it out by his command. I mean, there are ways to approach this if you, if you actually have somebody who will follow through with you and uh, not just have a, uh, a visceral reaction against what you're saying because he doesn't like it, uh, that you can actually make headway. Your presentation uh, could have something to do with how the person takes it as well, though. So that's why it's important. Oh, it, it is, mm -hmm. yeah. But uh, as, you, as you say, if you start out by saying, uh, as some Protestants, I've heard them on the radio, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. If you start off with that, <coughs> then uh, <clears throat> that's not uh, sort of a, a way to enter into meaningful dialogue with people necessarily. <clears throat> this is the type of topic that if, if you can have meaningful dialogue, it's probably going to take several several meaningful dialogues over time, uh, it's not something that's probably going to all happen at once either. Uh, right, but you have to establish some principles right. that they agree to. And that's why I think it's important to start with the basic principles that yes, our Lord is the Son of God, the only Savior, and yes, He established a church, and yes, to be faithful to Him, we have to be faithful to it. We have to acknowledge that church and belong to it. Um, and then the question becomes a matter of, well, is the Catholic Church that church, or is it not the Church of Christ established? Now you can get down to some very basic facts and deal with reality. And you can show, I mean, on all counts, uh, based on the prophecies from sacred scripture, but the words of our Lord about what the apostles would find in the future of the Church. You can find in the parables of our Lord, in the descriptions he gives, of the characteristics of the Church he's establishing, and you can find also in our Lord's life and what he experienced, you can find all of that points inevitably to the Catholic Church as being the church that Christ established. Um, in our apologetic sessions, we're going to be getting into this a bit. When we talk about Christ establishing the church, we're looking at the catechism lessons on the church and uh, why there is one true church. There can only be one true church because there's only one true Savior. Um, and what that church is and what it must be <clears throat> is determined by him. So the question then is to see what he says. Uh, there's a fourth point too, after the prophecies and the parables and our Lord's own life, there's the fourth point of what the apostles understood the church to be, church to be 
and how they actually carried out the commands of Christ in the Acts of the Apostles, and how the early church, the first Christian believers, understood what they understood from the preaching of the apostles, what they understood the church to be. All of those things point directly at the Catholic Church, the traditional Catholic Church, as being the church that Christ established. Certainly none of these Protestant churches, uh, or any other church that would call itself Christian, uh, that, that's not the they're not the churches that Christ established. If one <clears throat> knowingly adheres to a church that Christ did not establish, if one um, knowingly simply refuses to belong to the church that Christ did establish, there's formal guilt there, in a, in a, in a, a formal decision to defy our Lord and to be unfaithful to him. Um, that obviously would exclude one. You know, that unfaithfulness to Christ would exclude one from the kingdom of heaven here on earth in the church or, you know, in eternity. Right? But uh, the question that could arise is the question of invincible ignorance. That's a very serious question. Can someone be so confused that he would adhere to a wrong church, thinking that it was a church Christ established? Could he refuse to enter the Catholic Church? I'm talking about the traditional Catholic Church now, uh, not the modern modernist construct that came out of Vatican II, and still be saved, still save his soul. Well, that question could even come up as far as, what if you're a part of the, the modernist Vatican, mm -hmm. you know, post-Vatican II mm -hmm. church, well, there you and, are. and you're confused and, and you stay in that, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it applies to that now, I think, as well. Right, if one sees that, yes, historically, the Catholic Church is the true church that Christ established, and but then makes a mistake of saying, but then what we see now in these modern churches, that is the uh, successor, I mean, that's the modern version of this, this church, right? And so that's where I have to be. So there could very well be those who are clinging within the Novus Ordo for dear life, um, uh, thinking that this must be the Church of Christ established, and very confused about what's going on, but nonetheless, they figure this is what I've got to I've got to hang on for dear life to this, um, and not not facing the fact or not understanding the fact that what they see going on there is a rejection of the traditional faith, not the continuance, as Benedict liked to call it, the hermeneutic of continuity. That is not there is no continuity there. Uh, you know, not everybody is going to be able to understand that. Um, could someone still be in the state of grace and be misled in this regard? Well, yes, there's only one infallibility on the face of it. There's only one infallible power on the face of the earth, and that is the infallibility of the papacy. Well, actually, the ordinary magisterium of the Catholic Church throughout time also enjoys that infallible infallibility. But as far as an individual to make infallible judgments, the only individual on the face of the earth who could make infallible judgment at any given moment was a Roman Catholic pontiff, a vicar of Christ, who even then would be making judgments for the sake of binding the, con binding the consciences of all the Christians faithful throughout the entire world, speaking in matters of faith and morals, in other words, speaking ex cathedra. So uh, that's a very limited, limited time of infallibility limited to one individual under very, very narrow circumstances. So when we're talking about an individual that belongs to the Novus Ordo, 
and is confused and is trying to hold on to the faith as well as he can and uh, practice the faith as well as he can within the Novus Ordo, to what extent would God excuse him? Well, I can't. I, I decide that. I'm not his judge. The question is, is it possible that that could happen? And I believe, yes, it is possible that can happen. Um, one might say, well, if they really want the traditional faith, God will bring them back to it. And we see that happen. Uh, day after day after day, we see people who come from the tradition, the Novus Ordo, they've held on to the faith by some miracle of grace all this time, and they find their way back to the traditional Mass and traditional sacraments um, and all the traditional practices. They begin to they live as traditional Catholics once again. Um, that doesn't mean that all of them are necessarily going to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Even have the opportunity to do it. Mm -hmm. So um, the question is, can they still be saved? And uh, you know, the question then does does that put them outside the church? It is it is a truism to say that if anybody on the face of the earth is in the state of sanctifying grace, they have to belong to the church. They have to be united to the communion of saints. Mm -hmm. To be in the state of sanctifying grace. Um, no one can be in the state of sanctifying grace unless they are united with Christ. Christ has to unite himself with them <clears throat> by giving them the divine life of sanctifying grace in the soul. And uh, the grace, which we call sanctifying grace, is always accompanied by and requires the presence of the virtue of faith and the virtue of hope and the virtue of charity. In the soul. <laughs> Can God give these, the grace of these virtues? Could God give uh, anyone on the face of the earth a, an efficacious grace of faith? That, that person has the virtue of faith. I mean, God could impress a, a perfect knowledge of the, of the catechism of the Council of Trent in someone's mind instantaneously. I mean, we saw in the, in the, uh, in the gospel, our Lord giving to a, a deaf man who had never heard speech. Uh, we saw our Lord giving him instantaneously the power to speak, not only the physical power, but the necessary uh, intellectual and uh, even neurological power to speak and speak correctly, is what the gospel says, just like that. So could God impress upon the mind of someone all of the truths of the faith? Yes, he certainly could. He could instantaneously uh, give some much someone such a deep knowledge of the mysteries of faith that he could, you know, surpass St. Thomas Aquinas in his rational understanding of things and give him a, a, a uh, uh, advance him into the mystical life. You know? He could do that. Why not? He's God. He can do that. Could God, if someone uh, received that grace and cooperated with that grace, opened his heart and embraced that grace that God gave, uh, could God give him the grace and a hope? to place all of his hope in God? Of course he could. God could offer them that hope. Could the individual soul that embrace that and cooperate with that grace fully? Of course. God gave it the efficacious grace. It's the very definition of the efficacious grace that it accomplishes that change within the soul. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and if the soul then cooperated with the grace of faith and the grace of hope, could God give the efficacious grace of perfect charity? I mean, for that soul to actually make the decision to love God with all of its heart and mind and soul and strength, with all of the power of loving it has in its will. Yes, it could. There's nothing to hold it back. 
uh, except our own, you know, our pride and obstinacy and so on. <coughs> but God, by grace, could give such a powerful um, uh, movement of, of sanctifying grace to the soul, uh, uh, actual grace, I should say, to open that soul, to embrace the grace of God, to love him and to love him completely. And if that soul did have faith and open charity, and even perfect charity, would that soul be in the state of sanctifying grace? By definition, yes. I mean, it has, it has the love for God there. Loves God more than itself. So uh, that soul must be a member of the church. It must belong to the church. Let's put it that way. It must belong to the church that Christ established. Uh, it's, it's a great mystery. But it, it, it's possible. We know that God can do that. Now, does he do that? Has he done that? I don't know. I don't know. There are plenty of indications in the history of the church from doctors and fathers of the church and popes also um, pointing out that, uh, yes, God has in fact moved souls uh, precisely in this way to become in the state of grace. Um, the Phineites uh, go into mental gymnastics to try to explain somehow that soul must have been baptized with water to be in the state of grace because we know they say it's impossible to be in the state of grace otherwise. Um, they're going on their own personal interpretation of St. John chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, but that's not the church's understanding what, the, what their understanding is. Okay? Um, the church's understanding actually is spoken in the Council of Trent, in the Catechism of the Council of Trent, uh, that was at, uh, first published in, 19, in 1566. 1566, the very first edition of the Catechism of the Council of Trent came out under the name of St. Pius V, the first year of his reign. And in his treatment of the baptism of adults, the Catechism of the Council of Trent states, uh, almost verbatim, okay, um, and this is in Latin, of course, originally, but the Church does not show uh, the, see the urgency for the baptism of an adult convert as it does for the baptism of a child. Because should a, an adult die without having received the waters of baptism, through no fault of his own, then the church believes that um, the person's intention to receive baptism and his repentance for his sins will avail him unto grace and justice. Uh, so um, that really says, says it all right there. And it's there... It's there in Latin, unmistakably so. You don't even need to be a Latinist to, to follow the Latin mm -hmm. <clears throat> there uh, because the vocabulary is, is accessible even to an American uh, an Engl or an Englishman, you know, someone speaking English natively. You can understand what that says. Uh, if anybody would, have, would like to see that, I'd be glad to get the copy of that information too. Um, but anybody who in, the, in, this, in the world, in the state of sanctifying grace, has to belong to the church because that person has to belong to Christ. And uh, the divine life in the soul requires that. Uh, so no one can be in the state of sanctifying grace without actually belonging to the church. 
Interesting how that has tied into the question from someone else before about the communion of saints. Mm -hmm. um, you've also mentioned um, the the as the the true church being the traditional church, and that um, actually brings us to our next question, um, which was uh, about Vatican II. And the question is is uh, can you tell me what was Bishop Sheen's opinion of Vatican II? I can't. Uh, I, I, I just don't know. I haven't read anything written by Bishop Sheen or heard anything uh, where he was commenting about Vatican II. Okay? I'm sure there is such material out there. I just haven't seen it. Um, uh, Bishop Sheen was certainly affected by it. There's no doubt about it. Uh, in fact, uh, I'll tell you a little vignette, um, kind of a, a story that I was told uh, that I happen to believe, because the individual who told me, I think, um, would have been in a position to know, and is, uh, I don't question his veracity. When Archbishop Sheen was uh, actually named to uh, the Diocese of Rochester, New York, I understand that I was told that he was actually sent away on retreat uh, retreat that was actually a uh, mind-altering experience. That when he came back from that retreat, he was um, quite different. That he'd obviously gone through some mind-bending of some kind, uh, even to the point where uh, I think I think Archbishop Sheen <coughs> at one point even brought in Saul Alinsky to speak in the Diocese of Rochester. Which is about as radical as you can get, you know. Uh, radical leftist. No, no, no one I, I know of would ever describe Bishop Sheen as a leftist. Mm -hmm. The idea of him bringing in someone like Saul Alinsky to address um, anybody in his diocese, uh, the rank and file or the leadership, would, would you'd think that'd be out of the question. But the fact that he did so, as I understand, uh, indicates that some dramatic change came over him. Uh, the reason why I believe that this this happened, that there was this retreat, and he went through this, oh, you might call it a brainwashing session, um, which can include a lot of emotional trauma. Um, the reason why I believe this is because uh, we actually did see it happening back during the Vatican II Novus Ordo days. But it was first coming in. Remember, when the Novus Ordo came in, uh, when it was first introduced, uh, the modernists had some very practical problems. Uh, they had religious orders, and the religious orders often had missionaries in other countries. They had to re-educate everybody, like in the re-education camps of the communists, you know, the modernists had to re-educate everybody. And so, uh, religious orders that had missionaries off, you know, in the hinterland around the, around the world, I had to cycle them back through, had to cycle them through and re-educate them in waves as they would come in and re-educate them and send them back out, get another dose, another class in and re-educate them. And, and those who would be able to be re-educated, right? They, they would be then promoted. They would be sent back into the mission field. The ones who didn't quite shall we say, accept the indoctrination, uh, well, they had to be filtered out. You know? 
the reason why I say there is so much psychological uh, trauma in this whole thing is the story of, uh, of I think it's Cardinal Cicignani. Um, uh, impressed me. I was told that uh, when Cardinal Cicinati was called in by John the Twenty Third, and he was told to do something that he's, he, which was for him, was a crisis of conscience. Uh, that he was torn between what all of his training of obedience to uh, John the Twenty Third. I mean, the Vicar of Christ on Earth. He says, right. His whole training of his life from the time he was a little boy was to obey, 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 obey the church. And he always did, you know, all the way through. He had a great cardinal. And uh, when these changes were coming in, he finally was commanded to do something that he personally found against his conscience, that he thought there was something wrong. But that was brushed aside, and he was ordered to do this. And from what I what I've heard, and again, I you know I have to weigh the veracity of those and the knowledge of those who told me, but I I did believe this was was quite true. That he was actually seen just in tears over this, and and, and actually signed, speaking to himself, I don't want to do this. I can't do this. This is wrong. But I'm ordered to do this. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Well, he, what he did, gave in. This is his training. And uh, this was the dilemma. A dilemma can be a crisis of conscience. And a crisis of conscience can be one of the most traumatic experiences a human being can go through, especially someone who has a good conscience and wants to do what is right. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of uh, clergymen at all levels in the church who went through this terrible crisis of conscience. I mean, this was worse than being re-indoctrinated re by the North Koreans. Or the Viet Vietnamese, I mean, the Viet Cong, in the re-education camps. I mean, you'd have the prisoners of war sitting there, half-starved and <coughs> beaten and, you know, uh, sleep-deprived. But at least their conscience would be telling them, this is right, I just have to be true to my conscience. I know the consequence of being, being beaten and so on and so forth. But that was, that was something they would endure rather than violate their conscience. But here, now these men were being forced, compelled, crushed into doing something that they believed was totally contrary to their faith and the teaching of the church. Everything they loved, everything, everything they... Uh, it was their allegiance to Christ himself, you know. The things for which martyrs used to die uh, in defiance of Roman emperors, you know, to uh, withstand and uphold. But these men were being told by the vicar of Christ on earth. You mm. must do this mm. now. So this put them in the most horrible position possible for a Catholic, you know, ever. Mm. Um, and they, they died. Many of them died, uh, uh, died of a broken heart. Even when they were shipped off to be uh, um, uh, just basically buried alive in a nursing home, at an early age, because they didn't go along with the um, with the uh, uh, modernist uh, program, uh, many of them really, literally died died of a broken heart. Uh, they died broken because they felt that they had violated the, what was most sacred to them. 
I believe that pressure was on Bishop Sheen, and uh, I believe that what you saw Bishop Sheen there at the end of his life was not the Bishop Sheen we'd always known as a great champion of the faith. That's why I admire Archbishop Lefebvre so much. I mean, here Archbishop Lefebvre, he was obedient. He had the spirit of obedience, absolutely. Um, <coughs> and he, um, he was trained in the Vatican Diplomatic Corps. Um, his whole natural bent, as well as the bent of his training, was peace, you know, to make peace and concord. And um, so everything in him might have naturally spoken for go along, go along to get along, you know, find a way to work within and don't make waves and all the rest, you know, be obedient. If you have questions, you have doubts of your own. Just accept that the authority above you knows what it's doing, they're right. And if you have doubts, the problem for Monsieur Lefebvre was he didn't have doubts. He knew that what they were doing was wrong because he knew the faith and he wasn't going to talk himself into uh, an easy way out, a way to say, well, um, that's not my responsibility, that's their responsibility, they're going to answer first, and my responsibility is just to obey and quiet any qualms of conscience I have. Um, you know, we dealt with this kind of thing in the Nuremberg trials, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, with those who are willing to do that kind of thing. You know, and Archbishop Lefebvre was not one of them who was willing to do that. There were many other churchmen who were willing to, willing to do that, to a certain violence to their conscience, I think. Uh, I'm not saying that, that Bishop Sheen was one of those, um, but I do believe he was subject to, to serious pressures there. Um, but Archbishop Lefebvre uh, stood firm. And even after he had been through that process, uh, the 10 year long process of uh, rapprochement, of the 10 year long process of trying to work out some kind of an arrangement with the Vatican, because John the 23rd. Uh, no, no, a big mind. John Paul II was appealing to Archbishop Feb's diplomatic side, you might say. And John Paul II was trying to work out some kind of agreement, leaving the door open. And he instructed his cardinals to work with Archbishop Feb and try to bring him along and bring him back into the fold of the Novus Ordo. And basically to bring the Society of St. Pius X under the control of the Novus Ordo. Archbishop Feb went through this 10-year-long process, um, basically from 1978 to 1988, with John Paul II. We are victims of that uh, during that time that we were thrown out mm -hmm. because there were things that were going on that we knew uh, uh, were symptomatic of a problem. We didn't necessarily know about these negotiations going on, but we knew there was a problem somewhere, so we resisted these things, and for that reason we were thrown out. We found out uh, later, not that much later, we found out somewhat later, though, that it was because these negotiations were going on between Archbishop Feb and the Vatican to bring the Society of St. Pius X back into the Novus Ordo orbit. And so there had to be certain changes in the society that were demanded um, by the Novus Ordo authorities as kind of tokens of goodwill. Um, these were the changes that we we did not accept. We had not left the Novus Ordo to readopt those mm -hmm. changes. Um, but 
even there. I mean, Archbishop Lefebvre, his diplomatic side made him, you know, so want to, to find a way, if there were a way in conscious to workings out, for the good of the people, mm -hmm. uh, for the good of the Catholic people. But when all was signed, sealed, and delivered, he realized this is not acceptable, and he rejected it, because he knew it was a trap. And he had the strength and the faith to be able, at that point, you know, to kind of walk away from the altar, you know, and say, no, this isn't right. Mm -hmm. And I admire him for that, you know, to this day, and still offer Mass for him, uh, significant days in his life, the uh, anniversaries of his life, and uh, so on. So uh, this is the kind of strength it, it takes, though, you know, uh, uh, to uh, be able to stand up with that conviction and, and uh, stand on the basis of a principle that you know. That's what we're trying to do now. Um, for those in the world who are in the state of grace, I mean, the, anyone who's going to be in the state of grace in the world today is going to have to be able to do that. Stand on the basis of principle and fidelity to Christ. And it's going to become more and more difficult. And so the communion of saints here on earth is going to be pressed harder and harder. Um, by the world, the flesh and the devil. And uh, so uh, with the events going on in the world today, it's going to become, it's going to seem to shrink, shrink in terms of numbers. And yet the, it will not shrink in the sense, uh, the life of God in the soul, the sanctifying grace of God in the soul will increase uh, magnificently in the souls of those who remain faithful because they will have to love God so much in the world to maintain their faith and their hope and their love for him, that, it will, that their faith and their hope and their love for him will be, have to be so powerful that even though it might appear to be even on the point of extinction, because of the relatively fewer souls who are professing their faith, uh, that what is invisible, the intensity of that faith and hope and love for God will be so magnificent, so powerful that even the Antichrist himself ultimately will not be able to extinguish it. That's why uh, St. Louis de Montfort says that the saints of the latter days, he's speaking of the times of the Antichrist, uh, will have to will, will be such great saints, they'll have to be such great saints, that they will make the early martyrs of the church seem like shrubs in comparison with the cedars of Lebanon. Mm -hmm. You've heard that before. Yes. And that's the great saints they will be. But regardless, if one is going to be in the state of grace, he must belong to the communion of saints, <coughs> be united with the, soul, the holy souls here on earth, who are in the state of grace, the souls in purgatory, and the souls uh, that are in heaven, all together in this communion of saints. The, um, the church has learned from St. Paul to regard this as being uh, part of the body of Christ, because we call it the mystical body of Christ. Uh, because these, are, these souls live with the life of Christ. They must have a vital a relationship with our Lord. And it is though because his life blood uh, or life grace flows through their, in their souls that they are incorporated literally to him, meaning literally incorporated, made of one body with him. And so we've been given this image of the mystical body of Christ, vivified by him throughout the world in uh, the souls of those who are in the state of sanctifying grace. But even beyond this world, in purgatory and in heaven. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thought. Uh, when you 
talk about the communion of saints, we profess our belief in that communion of saints every time we pray the creed. And yet Catholics really need to have a deeper understanding of the meaning and the significance of that, of that expression, the communion of saints, and how powerful that is. Well, Father, uh, we're out of time to continue with our questions for tonight, but uh, we will pick up and uh, continue on with this in our uh, next show. I thank you very much. Uh, we thank you very much for your uh, explanations and insights. Oh, certainly, Jim. Thank you. Um, one uh, topic that I did want to uh, touch upon before we end tonight is that there have been questions that have come in from viewers about uh, finding traditional Catholic masses in their area and, and what they should do about that. And in those cases, uh, if you do have questions, if you could send us some information by email, uh, we will take a look at that. Father uh, may even contact you to try to help you out uh, to find a, a, traditional, a traditional Catholic uh, mass in your area. Also, uh, questions have come up about possibly making donations to the show. Uh, if you would like to do so, uh, you could contact the uh, address that is on the screen here and you could uh, provide your donation to what Catholics believe um, by sending it to the address on the screen now. Uh, if you do have any questions or comments, uh, you can also email them to us. Uh, we thank you very much for uh, watching us and for your support, and most especially for your prayers. And please remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima. We must pray, make sacrifice, and consecrate ourselves and our families to the Immaculate Heart. Thank you.